Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So how much is Jimbo Fisher to blame for the mess that is Florida State that Willie Taggart inherited? And why did Alabama decide that University of South Florida is a good opponent for them to enter a series with? And what impact will Devin White have as a rookie? And can Nick Fitzgerald find a way to make the Bucks roster? We ask both of their college football coaches. We're going to get all of that and more from Matt Baker, the college football writer for the Tampa Bay Times, who is back from the SEC meetings on this edition of Sports Day Tampa Bay. I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times, along with producer Steve Versnick. Hey, if you'd like to sponsor a portion of this podcast, we've got lots of new ways you can do that. Uh, this podcast is growing each and every month. Our advertisers are having great success, and so will you. Now, here's what you do. For information, you can contact us on Twitter, at SportsDayTB, or you can reach me on Twitter, at NFL Stroud, or my email address is rstroud at Tampa Bay. Dot com. We'd love to have you be part of our team. Okay, Matt Baker joins us now back from uh, the uh, Southeastern Conference meetings uh, there in the panhandle. Matt, uh, a lot of topics to talk about. You've written about so many of them or will uh, do so in the Tampa Bay Times here shortly. Um, one pretty strong analysis uh, that you did uh, involved Jimbo Fisher, of course, now of Texas A&M. And we saw you know, his last season at Florida State uh, wasn't exactly a success, seven and six. Um, and, you know, I guess, you know, last year for Florida State was uh, was such a bad season under Willie Taggart, his first five and seven. But but so much of that, uh, I think you rightfully point out, uh, was sort of the sort of the remnants of, of what Fisher left or in this case, maybe didn't leave uh, Willie Taggart uh, in the condition that that program uh, was in. Um, interesting that when you talk to him, maybe not surprising, but he doesn't see it that way. <laughs> no, he does not, Rick. And, and thanks for having me on. Um, I asked him straight up, you know, how, wh- how do you think you left the program at Florida State? And he said, that's first words, I think it's in great shape. Not mm. was in great shape, is in great shape. Then mm. he, he went on from there. And you know, we'll, we'll preface this by saying, what's he going to say? He's not going to say anything negative about his former sure, school. That, that's sure. not really the way coaches do with these things and honestly i bet he hasn't given fsu a whole heck of a lot of thought because he's got his job you know he's got his hands full at, at a&m at making 75 million dollars and playing in the toughest division in college football so he's doing his own thing and i totally get it um but the, the fact that he thought everything was, was kind of hunky-dory was was a little bit surprising to me um and to your point he, he left i think it's become clearer what we knew when he was on his way out, that the program was not in great shape. Florida State shouldn't be in a situation where they're having to reschedule Louisiana Monroe to make a bowl game. That's not where the Seminoles were. That's not where they should be, especially after Jimbo had you know four six or four straight top six recruiting classes. But I think we know now, with the hindsight of looking at, at how FSU fared last year, he left it in worse shape than we thought. The, the problems that the problems that FSU had under Willie were exacerbated 
by the situation that, that Jimbo left. The offensive line was not very good under Jimbo. It got worse under Willie. The effort, I think, at times was not good under Jimbo, which is why they were blown out every, you know, each of his last four years in at least one game. And I think it got worse under Willie. The recruiting at, at the end of uh, uh, the, the Jimbo era was not good, and it, Willie had to really uh, fight to get a decent class his first year, and the, the one last year wasn't very good. So kind of all, add all that stuff up. I'm not absolving Willie Taggart of any blame for, for five and seven. He is the coach. It's his job to fix it no matter what. But what I am saying is now, with the benefit of hindsight, Jimbo left a worse program than we thought. Yeah, and I think it. I think that's part of the problem. Like you said, uh, uh, you know, certainly Willie Taggart had had something to do with last year. But you know what Fisher, what Fisher would argue, I guess, um, and you just mentioned it, is that he had had some good um, recruiting classes uh, on his way out. Four of, of of the top six, I guess, um, before he left, he had guys like Cam Akers. Um, you mentioned Marvin Wilson. Marvin Wilson, uh, one, yep. One of the top defensive linemen, yeah. So, I mean, you know, his his take, I guess, was, look, they, they've got some of the most talented players in the country. So, you know, there is that, but just simply not enough of them and not in the places they needed them. Yeah, I mean, the big thing is where we can definitively point to Jimbo having a big imprint on last year in a negative way was the offensive line. If you look yeah. at the players that they recruited, they, were, they took some projects that didn't work out. They had some bad mm-hmm. luck with injuries. You know, Landon Dickerson being the most obvious, very talented player, uh, was a blue chip recruit who just, I mean, just hasn't worked out because of injuries. That's not his fault. But there, there were misevaluations. There were maybe some reaches. Uh, Josh Ball was kicked off the team for some off the field issues. You kind of put all that stuff up, up into a stew, and maybe the, the fact that the coaching at the end of the, the Jimbo era at that position wasn't very good. You kind of add all that stuff up, and then you get an offensive line that was one of the worst in college football. Again, it's Willie's job to fix it. He's paid a lot of money to fix it. I, we can't absolve him of blame. I mean, uh, Dan Mullen didn't inherit a great situation in Gainesville, and he took him to a Peach Bowl. So, again, Willie deserves some blame too, but the offensive line, I don't know what all Willie could have done to make that into like a – 10 win team or anything like that. And a lot of that is because of what Jimbo left. One of the things that it appeared that he might have left would be a quarterback, but um, their situation has certainly been completely in flux uh, even since Willie got there and continues to change. Uh, I know the Wisconsin quarterback, Alex Hornibrook, has, has transferred as sort of a, uh, a fifth year guy. Um, how, what is the quarterback situation? It is, will that, obviously, they've addressed the other issues too, the offensive line and such, but. How much of that will um, will change, do you think, in year two under Willie? Well, I mean, there, there's going to have to be change because DeAndre Francois is gone. He, he was yeah. uh, a capable starter, at, certainly at times, under Jimbo. He didn't look great last year. He regressed either because of the coaching or maybe his system. He didn't fit what, what Willie wanted to do so well. Um, so obviously there was, there was going to be change there anyway. James Lackman, to me, I think is still going to be the starter. Alex Hornibrook the Wisconsin grad transfer. It's kind of weird because he, he was, he wasn't, I don't know that he was well liked by the Wisconsin fan base. He wasn't great by any means, but the one game no. I saw him play <laughs> in the orange bowl against Miami, I was like, Oh, that's a pretty good player. And that ended up you know, being the best game of his career probably. So <laughs> yeah. I, he, I don't think he's, she's obviously not going to be the long-term answer because he's a grad transfer. I don't know that he's a short-term answer either, but he was huge just to get some depth at that position, because as we sit yeah. here today, 
we still don't know whether Jordan Travis Louisville transfer is going to be eligible immediately. And if you didn't have uh, Hornybrook there, then you were looking at basically a walk-on as the backup. So he added some much-needed depth, but to me it's still going to be James Blackman's job to lose as the FSU starting quarterback. And he's shown, again, uh, when his true freshman season, the last under under Jimbo, he's shown that he can be a, a, a capable and, and good with very high upside quarterback. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, he, you know, Black Blackman has had good moments. I think with Hornibrook, because I watched a lot of Wisconsin football. My, my wife uh, went to school there, and for whatever reason, now we're Big Ten fans on the weekend, I guess, with, with Wisconsin. He is just that guy. You, you probably saw him on a good day, um, yep. and, and that's pretty much what it takes. He's very streaky. He can hit seven in a row or miss 15 in a row. Um, you just don't know, and and so they need to iron that out, obviously, and, and they've got other problems, too. Is the general – I know you've um, – probably encountered some Florida State fans, boosters, whatnot. I know uh, Taggart has been in the area. Um, just what is the angst among the Florida State fans right now with Willie? There's a lot of trepidation. Um, again, I, I think in, in hindsight, we know that the situation he inherited was not good. And, you know, Jimbo got while the getting was good, I, I think. But, mm. it, again, it's Willie's job to fix it. And the fact is, there were questions about his hire in the first place. I liked the hire because I thought I think he's I, and I still think he's a good coach who can do some smart things offensively, and he's turned programs around before. But I, I, even at the time, I heard from some FSU fans who pointed out that he almost got fired at USF, which is a hundred percent true, and that he has a you know a losing record overall in his career, which again is true. So I, I think the the fact that the first season went so disastrously the trepidation and the concern has built. And it's not a, he has to win 10 games or he's gone this year. It's, it's nothing like that. Um, FSU is not in a position where they could buy him out even if they wanted to. He's, barring disaster or scandal, he's not, he's not on the hot seat right now. But I do think if they don't win eight games probably this year, heading into 2020, there's going to be a lot more trepidation. And then we can start having the hot seat conversation. Again, if there's not substantial improvement shown this season. Scheduling is always a big thing in college football. We've seen USF um, do some things where they have, um, you know, certainly try to lock up some series against some Power Five schools uh, in the future. Uh, one of those, surprisingly, I guess maybe not from USF standpoint, but Alabama has uh, signed a three-year deal. Of course, two of those games will be in Tuscaloosa. You had a chance to talk uh, to Nick Saban. So, what what's in it for the Crimson Tide? Like, why uh, why does USF make sense for them? Yeah, I asked that that question to Greg Byrne, the Bama AD, um, and he kind of gave me the, the answer that I thought. Um, first of all, they, they don't do a lot of road games to programs, you know, to, to group of five programs, and mm-hmm. but USF has a full, you know, a big stadium and an NFL stadium, so that's a good thing. Tampa is obviously a very good recruiting place that Bama has has recruited well in the past, so that makes sense that they'd want to be here. They've got a lot of fans in the Panhandle, up in, in the Destin area where I was the last couple of days. And, you know, it's not a bad drive down uh, 10 and 75 to get to Ray J. So a lot of their fans are going to be able to go. But I think the biggest reason, as it is with most things in, in college football, it's the money. You know, the, the going rate for a group of five directional school buy game right now is, is it's approaching $2 million. I mean, Bama's paying, I think it's 1.7 to play New Mexico State in a year or two, another 1.9 to play them again in a couple of years. They're going to pay Utah State 1.9 just for one game. Whereas in this situation, they get, obviously, they get the two home games. It's basically, they're treating it like it's a home and home with USF. 
And then the third one is a buy game where they're paying USF a million dollars. So from their perspective, they're getting two home games here for the price of half of a New Mexico state or something. So, and again, if Bama is the Bama that we expect them to be, they shouldn't, you know, USF, I don't know what they're going to look like in a couple of years, but USF uh, should, well, if all things being as we would expect, USF probably won't beat Alabama, just being straight and honest. So if they're going to pay somebody, might as well pay them less money and get it maybe a little bit bigger name that Bama should be able to handle. So it, it made a lot of sense on a lot of levels, but I think the bottom line is, as usual, the bottom line. Right, exactly. Makes makes a lot of dollars and cents. Uh, along those same lines, uh, USF also has done a series with the University of Miami. They open against the University of Florida. That game is in Orlando uh, this year. You know, Florida and Miami have played over the years at times. Um, is, is that something that Dan Mullen would be would be willing to do more of, you think? Yeah, I, I asked him that and, and Scott Strickland as well. I, I think, and I asked Dan that because Miami would be a program that makes sense with how the Gators want to schedule and how they're scheduling. You know, they, they added the Colorado series, they added the Texas series, so they're open to more home and homes even if it means mm-hmm. leaving the state to play Power 5 teams. I remember Mullen saying about a year ago that when he's doing scheduling, he wants to play teams that make kind of geographic sense, where his players, you know, their, their families can go watch them play. That's one reason why the Gators have a two-for-one series uh, with, with USF coming up. So mm-hmm. you kind of put those things together, and Miami would make some sense. Um, as of uh, yesterday, there haven't been any serious conversations between the Gators and Hurricanes, the people that matter there, about making the, the one-off game in Orlando, extending that into a series. But the Gators are certainly open to the idea. They're not going to do it every year. Um, it's, it's kind of funny. They think, you know, Florida people kind of keep saying that they deserve more credit for playing Florida State every year. They, they kind of want to puff their chest about playing a really good in-state ACC rival. And, and you know, they should deserve credit for, for playing a, a big team like that. So I think they're a little hesitant to add on another one like that that maybe won't give them the credit they feel they deserve. But I think as a an occasional series, home-and-home home type thing, maybe more one-offs in Orlando or Tampa or something like that, US, or excuse me, UF is absolutely interested and open to that idea at least. Yeah, I, I, I think that helps uh, in, in different ways. It helps those schools for sure. Um, in, in talking about uh, you know teams like, uh, like Alabama and Georgia, um, you know, clearly the, the class of the SEC, right? I mean, those, oh, yeah. those would seem to be the heavyweights. And in, not in small part, I mean, the programs themselves with Kirby Smart, Nick Saban, of course, are, are well-established in all the national championships Alabama has. Um, but their quarterbacks are kind of good too right now. Um, <laughs> Correct. If, if, you, if you put it that way. Um, but I'm interested because the big thing now in college football is we see all these transfers, right? And we've seen, we've seen it happen um, with Nick Saban now at Alabama. It's likely to happen more, uh, especially at the upper tier schools where guys you know, are, are high recruits. They get there. There's somebody in front of them. And, and, and a lot of times at the quarterback position in particular, they move on. So how do, how does, how do guys like Saban and them uh, feel about this, this whole transfer portal? Yeah, so the transfer portal – along with scheduling and, and whether the SEC is going to start allowing alcohol sales in their general admission seating, those are kind of the three big topics of conversation um, mm-hmm. up in Destin at the Hilton San Destin where these, these meetings take place. Um, the, the, there's a big range on how coaches and administrators feel about the transfer portal. Now, Will Muschamp said, basically, we're approaching free agency. He said it last year, but he kind of reiterated that today. And then, yeah. or the other day, and then on the other end of that spectrum is, is Kirby and, 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 and Nick Saban and Andy Staples, uh, a former Tampa Tribune writer, writes for a, a 
publication called Sports Illustrated. Um, <laughs> he, he had a smart uh, take the other day that Kirby and, and and Nick and you know Dabo and there's a couple Lincoln Riley. There's a couple others are pretty much in the minority because they don't see it as much of an issue because, okay, if a really good quarterback leaves, that's fine. We're going to get another one. And Mm -hmm. most of the time we're going to be losing someone who wasn't going to cut it here for one reason or the other, who is a backup upset with playing time or whatever. And we're going to replace them with somebody just as good, if not better. And I mean, it's a, it's a heck of a problem to have. Um, and, and, uh, again, they're in the minority there, but that's certainly where, where Kirby and, and Nick are right now, where they're just recruiting at such a high level and able to use the transfer portal too, at such a high level that they're not, they're not too worried about it. I don't know this. So that's why I'm asking, but is, is there going to be, or is there a limit of how many times a player can enter the portal, so to speak? Like, what if I go from Alabama to Florida and I don't cut it there? Can I go to FAU? I mean, what, what is sort of the the protocol there with that um i don't have an answer i mean i don't think there's an there there's a limit to it now i mean i don't think there is too the the portal it's a fantastic name and again the situation the the (laughs) rule is a literal thing right i mean no no you don't go and suddenly you're you're at your uh lane kiffin's (laughs) at your doorstep it's not how it works hey everyone I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, it's it's just made everything easier with transferring but again you could transfer as many times as you wanted as many times uh, early on Um, what's what's Mm -hmm. changed is it's easier to transfer because instead of being a situation where I go to you and say I want to leave Arkansas State and you know used to be you would say great what schools you want to contact you can't oh no you can't do that one that one that one but you can do these three now it's a situation where I go to you and say I want to leave Anybody can contact me or anybody that I want can contact me. So it's made it a little bit easier on the player. Um, So maybe it's a little easier to find some of those destinations. And then the other kind of wrinkle to this is it looks like I've seen conflicting things, but certainly the public perception is it's maybe a little bit easier to get an NCAA waiver now that would let you play immediately rather than sitting out a year. Again, I don't know that there's hard data to show that. There might actually be data to show the opposite. But certainly the perception is, and the perception among some of the players doing this is, it's easier for me to get a, a waiver so I won't have to sit out a year going from Bama to Florida Atlantic or whatever the case may be. So, I mean, to answer your question, it's, there's nothing stopping you from transferring as many times as you want, except for the fact that, just like, just like it was a year ago and five years ago, if you transfer, there's a chance, or a, a very good chance, you're still going to have to sit out a year. You mentioned alcohol sales, and I don't know if this factors into this necessarily or not, but but one of the things that's, uh, I guess, true across college football is the in-stadium attendance. And um, we've seen this in, in pro sports. I don't know whether now that it has some of the same symptomatic uh, reasons uh, in, in college sports. But is that a discussion, first and foremost, of what the reasons why maybe some of these stadiums are not full? And if so, uh, how how might the alcohol sales – uh, be changing and how might that factor into that at all yeah so alcohol sales this is i think my fourth sec meetings 
alcohol sales, I'm pretty sure, has been caught, you know, brought up in all of them and, and probably for the last 40, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Um, yeah. It's always a topic of conversation. The, the fact that attendance is down in the SEC and across the nation is, is a very big concern, not so much for the coaches, but the, the presidents and the athletic directors, because there's, I mean, there's a lot of long, short-term and long-term issues and concerns if people aren't going to games. Um, now, the question is, would allowing alcohol sales and you know your lower bowl or whatever it is, would that make a dent? Would it would it add a little bit of a spike or a big spike or no spike at all in terms of people to come into games? Most people that I talk to up in Destin seem to think it might help a little bit with some people, but it's not a magic bullet. It's not going to cure it. The, the reason college football attendance is down, there's a ton of reasons. And for some people, alcohol sales is one part of it. So it's, it's something they're absolutely looking at. Um, and they're looking at it for a number of reasons. Maybe more people will come. Even if not a lot more people come, they might spend more money. So that can kind of make up for a little bit, buying the, the $9 Coors Light or whatever it is. Um, and, and there's actually, you know, uh, I've heard anecdotally that in some ways, Selling alcohol at a stadium might make things a little bit safer. Um, the, the argument goes that if you're if you want to to indulge and drink some some alcohol while you're watching a game, if you spread it out over a period of time that includes the three and a half four hours of the football game itself, you're not you're going to be less likely to binge before or afterward. So it might make it in fact a little bit safer. So you kind of add all that stuff up. There's a lot of it's it's been a topic of conversation for years. Certainly some of my colleagues in the media up there in Destin think this is the year it's going to change, but we'll find out uh, uh, you know, on Friday whether the SEC decides to, to change or kick the, uh, the beer can down the road again. <laughs> well, and, and I mean, currently just to, I mean, uh, there is alcohol in college stadiums, obviously, but a lot of times they're restricted to uh, places other than, uh, say, the general seating, right? Is that yeah, yeah, the way it works? Yeah. Yeah, good, good question. Let me let me clarify. Um, and the SEC allows uh, for colleges to sell seating, like you said, in, in the premium seating, which is your clubs and suites. Um, sure. Florida's done a beer garden. I think they did it at a spring game last year, and then they they kind of did it during the season as well. As part again, part of the part of a sampler of things that they're doing, just like food trucks and and, and that sort of thing. So uh, a beer garden was part of it. So there's some of that now um but the proposal would be to open it up more and some schools across the country have have done this i think oklahoma state is one that's opening it up more this year so uh, it would just make it so you could buy a beer in in any section now whether that means people are going to be you know guys are going to be walking through the swamp beer get your beer here i don't know what what, what would it mean for for students uh in the student section again there's a lot of kind of logistics and details that would have to be decided but the first step is the continuation of a conversation that's been going on for a long, long time in the SEC. I can just imagine. I'm thinking of LSU fan right now with all the flasks that they bring into the to uh, <laughs> stadium at night games. And I mean, I mean, it was been a hundred years since I this is I covered college football uh, on any kind of a regular basis. But there is nothing quite like walking out into the parking lot um, at at that stadium after a night game. And and kicking about ten thousand bourbon bottles <laughs> everywhere. So well, Rick, it's it's, a, it's it's interesting you mentioned that. Sorry to interrupt, um, but you'll never guess what school seems to be pushing for it the most, and, and also what writer 
is 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 kind of writing about this issue the most. Uh, it's, it's Ross Dellinger who used to cover really? LSU for the the yeah. Baton Rouge Advocate. Now works for SI. He's been writing about it quite a lot for over the last couple of years because yeah. the people in LSU and Baton Rouge and Death Valley care an awful lot about this. <laughs> it's a, it's a big topic, I'm sure, no doubt about it. Um, so we'll see where that goes. Uh, speaking of LSU, um, you had a chance to talk to a couple of SEC coaches that. Uh, Bucks fans uh, should probably listen to and and yep. uh, and and listen carefully. Of course, Devin White, uh, the Bucks' uh, first round pick, number five overall, uh, was a, a very very good linebacker to say the very least uh, at LSU. You had a chance to talk to Ed Orgeron. We can see the film, uh, Matt, uh, of what the plays he can make, but but Orgeron seemed to think that there's there's more to this guy. Absolutely. I mean, Devin White was a, a heck of a player. I mean, I, I watched him a lot, obviously, uh, playing the Gators and playing other people. So, I, I mean, I asked Orgeron just the pretty open-ended question. What was the most impressive thing about him? Because he coached him for a number of years. He said it's a leadership. And it's, it's all the intangible stuff, the, the work mm-hmm. ethic. Um, again, the, the leadership. And, and he mentioned, too, you got to go back to, to, the, to the Fiesta Bowl when they were getting ready to play UCF. A handful of their guys ended up not playing for one reason or another. I mean, Greedy Williams, who I, I think at the time most people thought was going to be a first-round draft pick at cornerback, was among those who said, you know what, I don't want to play in this game. I don't have anything to prove. I'm not going to do it. But here's Devin White not only playing in it, but according to Orgeron, kind of working his tail off, never dipping in, in his work ethic or leadership or anything like that for a meaningless game that could have lost him potentially a lot of money and, mm-hmm. again, didn't matter against a, a, a UCF team. And I think it's strengthened maybe his draft stock a little bit. That and and it was certainly something that stuck out to Orgeron, and that's uh, one reason the Bucks Bucks fans should be excited about him uh, as a number five overall pick. A very mature kid, and I th- he took that game over too. By the way, if you go back and watch it, he, he's um, a hell he of made, a player, Rick. He is yeah, good. he made every play. Yeah, but they talk about his leash. He's a mature guy. When when we got a chance to talk to him at the combine and other places. Um, for a guy that's just barely 21 years old, uh, I don't think he'll have trouble convincing men with mortgages and children 10 years older than him to follow him. He's just that sort of that um, personality. So that'll be fun to watch. And then another player that I think has a good chance to make this football team, we just don't know as what. And that's really the story about Nick Fitzgerald, who, who was a quarterback at Mississippi State, but he was also sort of that guy that was willing to do almost anything um, in college, too. Yeah, so I, I, I've heard uh, our, our fantastic Bucks writer and also you, Rick, uh, talk about <laughs> Nick and his. Uh, I kid, I kid. Uh, no, Not but one no, and I, the same. Not one I and know, the same. I know. Um, but but I, I went in, you know, to Destin thing, and I'd love to talk to, to Joe Moorhead, the Mississippi State coach, and Mullen, of course, the, the Gators coach who, who coached and recruited Fitzgerald at Mississippi State. Wanted to talk yeah. to those guys about him because. He's, he's not going to make an NFL roster as a pure quarterback. He's not. I mean, his completion percentage, 51.6 last year, was last in the SEC, I think 102nd nationally. If he had been a good or maybe even adequate thrower against the Gators, Mississippi State would have won that game, um, that that ugly but but fun game in Starkville, the Mullen Bowl. And there were probably a couple others, too. That's just the one that jumps off the top of my head, that they would have won if they if, – uh, Fitzgerald had been a better pure passer, but he was a very good college player. He rushed for more yards as a quarterback than any quarterback in, in the history of the SEC, including that Tebow guy. He's tough to bring down. He's agile. He's mobile, and and, and, he, and he's pretty big too. So you kind of really? add all that stuff up. He has a chance to be a player in the NFL. It's again, it's not going to be at quarterback, 
but you know you kind of look at what what Taysom Hill's done with the Saints. Um, maybe he's a guy who can come in on some weird you know specialty goal line packages. Maybe doing some trick plays on special teams. Uh, maybe uh, heck being in the shield on special teams. I don't know. You kind of he's a guy that's if you're talking just pure football players, he might definitely be one of the the top fifty three guys that are on the Bucks right now. So uh, I, I asked Moorhead and Mullen about that about them and just. Uh, his his work ethic and, and kind of the mentality and the, the physical ability and they absolutely think he's a guy who could who is a able physically to to fill a well you're a good player we'll figure it out role on the team and also has the mental uh, intelligence and the willingness to to do that job. Yeah, and I've seen him uh, already worse, working as a uh, sort of a, a personal protector on the punt team. He's going to play special teams. They've they've looked at him as a wide receiver. So. Uh, and then, you know, in the NFL, when you carry – most teams want to only carry two quarterbacks these days. If you have a third guy that can go in there and, let's face it, if you're down to your third quarterback, you probably have a bad day anyway. Uh, right. But they can go in there and at least function in that position um, and not have to use a whole roster spot but have a guy that can play other positions like Fitzgerald can. That's a big boost um, for a guy like that. So um, I'm really uh, – I'm kind of bullish on his chances of at least making um, the 61 and probably the 53 – as we get uh, get into training camp, you know, it's always for those people who have not been to uh, the greater uh, exotic resorts of Destin, Florida. Um, <laughs> these, these these SEC meetings um, are uh, are pretty special, and and the Southeastern Conference. Let's face it, they're the uh, the epicenter, of course, as we know of of uh, college football and, and in some cases uh, all sports. But what 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 is the buzz up there about the SEC this year? Are there some rising teams? Are there some falling teams? Like just in general. When you talk about college football, it seems like everything, uh, at least in these parts, because we have Florida down the road, it, it seems to center around uh, the SEC. So what, what is the sort of the buzz about, uh, about teams uh, heading into this football season? Well, I hope you're sitting down, and I hope everyone listening to this is sitting down. <laughs> I know down. where this is going. I know where this is going. <laughs> well, Rick, Alabama it's chalk. and Georgia are going to be really, <laughs> really, really good. good. I knew it. Yes, but, I mean, they but, are. But – but seriously, you're giving me, you know, I will take Bama, Georgia, and Clemson. You can have the field. I mean, uh, <laughs> it's right. It's really like that, too. It, it absolutely it just is. is. Last yeah. year, I, I said, give me Bama, Clemson, um, Ohio State. You can have the field. And, and obviously, all yeah. three turned out to be really good. So, And I would narrow that down just to Bama, Clemson. <laughs> I mean, that's just me. Here's, but, the, here's, yeah. the thing on, here's the thing on Georgia, though. And you're not necessarily wrong. I think Georgia is, is three out of those bunch. Um Georgia had a really good year last year. Um, it's easy yeah. to to downplay it a little bit because they didn't look great in the, against the Sugar Bowl, in the Sugar Bowl against Texas, but they still had a really good year and they had every opportunity to knock off Bama. Yeah, and if Kirby didn't call the one of the weirder fake punts mm. that, of my lifetime, then maybe they would have. <laughs> but I say that to say, last year was going to be a step back for Georgia. It, like it, there was a year if you're going to get them soon, that was the year. Because now yeah. the Kirby's, you know, just recruiting machine has gotten to a point where, okay, the younger guys who were playing last year are now are now older. Plus, he has, yeah. you know, the number one, number two class, whatever it was in the country. So Georgia is going to be really, really good. I think this is going to be. It's not. I can't be say this is the start of the Georgia kind of budding dynasty because they yeah, almost won a national yeah. title two years ago. But I think this is going to be the continuation of it. Um, so mm-hmm. obviously, Bama and Georgia are going to be really good. LSU, I still think is really is going to be really really good. Um, 
Florida uh, is still, I think they're going to be number two in the SEC East. Um, okay. 10 wins, I don't think is out of the question for them uh, because oh. the, the rest of the East is, is not as good outside of Georgia. I mean, Tennessee, I'm not high on. Vanderbilt, I'm not high on. Kentucky is going to take a step back after losing Josh Allen and Benny Snell. Um, Mizzou, I mean, Kelly Bryant, the, the Clemson transfer at quarterback, is going to be a big difference, but I still don't don't love the Tigers. So, again, I, I think Florida is probably second in the East. And then when you look at the West, again, like I said, LSU is, is probably the number three team in the conference. Yeah. They're going to be quite good again with Joe Burrow and his, another year with him as the quarterback. I think A&M is one of the more interesting teams uh, in the league and maybe in the country because they're they're really talented. I mean, Kellen Mond, uh, quarterback, I thought did fine last year. Is going to you know he's got another year. It's Jimbo's second year, kind of showing everybody the ropes. And year two is a year where you can make a big jump. The problem yeah. for them is their schedule is awful. I mean, they, I think they're they play Bama, they play Clemson, and they play Georgia, which are you know again one two three in the country in my opinion. Plus LSU, plus Auburn. I mean, I, I think they they have top ten potential. I think top fifteen is probably more likely. But with that schedule, they still might only win eight games. But it would still be a really really good eight win team. And of course, all this gets us back to Jimbo Fisher. And uh, I'm told that you have even a bigger scoop on Jimbo. Uh, Rick, I have a double scoop on Jimbo. <laughs> um, I, after the, his little media session, uh, I walked across the the Hilton Sandestin where these the SEC meetings are, and I needed some some Starbucks, needed some some caffeine, and who's in front of me in line but Jimbo Fisher himself. So I asked him, Jimbo, what, what what's your drink? What are you getting? Well, it's not just a coffee shop there. There's an ice cream shop too. He was getting a a, a double scoop of mint chocolate chip and a cone, and said he was going back on his diet tomorrow. So. There you go. That's 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 my double scoop for you on, on Jimbo Fisher. <laughs> what's what's amazing is that somebody actually were able to take that order as fast as he talked. That was good. I don't even know how uh, how they would be able to handle that. But that's why you are the best college football writer in the South, uh, if not the nation, at the Tampa Bay Times. You come up with those kind of of uh, details, and uh, we appreciate Matt Baker. You can read him on TampaBay.com. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Rick. A little bit of breaking news. Ndamukong Sue, the Bucks' new defensive tackle, will be introduced today over there at the Bucks facility. He's in there to take a physical. And then I think he's headed back uh, maybe uh, to Oregon and will be back, I would suppose, next week for the mandatory minicamp. So we'll have a chance to chat with him later this morning. And the Rays, they continue their series against the Minnesota Twins, and they'll be uh, at the Tropic Course all weekend long. Thanks for listening. Hope you guys have a great weekend. For Steve Versnick, I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.